You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. I want to give a special word of thanks to the welcoming committee at Rockland who arranged to have some beautiful snow for me. I'm only here for two days and look what I got. This was great. You guys are doing fantastic. Um, We're entering the Advent season and It's a hard thing for us to remember. Um, We're going to be looking in John chapter 1, and it's kind of a hard thing for us to remember that the gift at Christmas, the real gift, didn't come in a package. It came in a person. It came as a prince. We've been talking about hope, and, and honestly, John's account was a lot different than the one that's familiar to you. I know that most of you learned the coming of Jesus from Linus. That's the truth. Come on. And in Matthew and Luke, he told us about the manger and he told us about Bethlehem, six miles south of Jerusalem, and and how Jesus was born there. John starts in a kind of odd way in the fourth gospel. So I want to take a few minutes and I want to look at four little vignette stories and skip a stone across the top of them in John chapter one. And this is what John was trying to say in his whole approach to Jesus' coming. He said this, Jesus brought us a finished picture of who God is. But he also did something else. He brought us an invitation to join with him and walk with him. And so I I, want to take you first, maybe to set this up, I think it's going to be easier if I take you to a story that Max Licato, the writer, uh, wrote about a very dark cave. He wrote this about 10 years ago. This is the story. The, The cave dwellers would huddle together and cry against the chill. Loud and long they wailed. It was all they did. It was all they knew. The sound of the cave was mournful because they had never known joy. The spirit in the cave was death because they had never known life. And one day they heard from outside the cave a different voice that said, I have heard your cries. I have felt your chill. I've seen your darkness and I'm here to help you. The cave people grew quiet. Hope sounded strange to hope-starved ears. How can you know what we need? Trust me, I know exactly what you need. And as they were huddling in the back of the cold cave, they watched as the man standing in front of the cave stooped and stacked, stooped and stacked. What are you doing? What's going on out there? The visitor stood up and he said, I have what you need. And with a small spark, he lit a fire. He ignited it. The flames erupted and light filled the dark cavern. Put it out. It hurts to see it. Light always hurts before it helps, said the man. Step closer. Pain will soon pass. You'll soon be able to see. The stranger stood right next to the fire. Would you prefer the darkness? Do you prefer the cold? Don't consult your fears. Take a step of faith. He's right. From behind him came another voice. It is warmer. The stranger turned to see a woman walking up to the fire. I can open my eyes now. I can even see. Come closer, the fire builder said. She did. Come, everyone. Feel the warmth. Quiet, woman. Take your light and go away. She turned to the man who built the fire and said, why won't they come? Do they prefer the cold and the darkness over the light and the warmth? It's what they know, he said. I tell you that story because that's exactly how John chapter 1 opened the story of the coming of Jesus. 
He, he did it with, you've got to remember that John is the last quill standing. All the other disciples are dead. And when he writes his gospel, it's a full generation after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he opens it with these words. Listen to this. He said, in the beginning was the word. And the word he used was logos. That'll be important to us later. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And the word or logos was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into beginning through him. And apart from him was not even one thing that came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. Now, John was a pastor, and he knew his flock, and he knew the place where he was preaching. He was preaching in Ephesus, and 500 years before John was the pastor there, there was a philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. And, and what he said was, he was a cosmologist, he was kind of their version of an ancient philosopher-scientist, and he said, all of the universe, the cosmos, is held together by some strange force. We know it's there, we see that it's there, but we don't know what it is. And he called that force the Logos. Well, Socrates later weighed in on the Logos, and so did Aristotle. And so John showed up, and when he opened up his gospel, it's like he said this, Heraclitus, long ago, you were right. There is a Logos holding everything together, and I'd like to introduce him to you because he's a person, not a force. So with that opening, he said, this Logos, look at the verses, he said this Logos was in the universe before the universe was created. He was with God. He was in essence one with God. He was the creative, a creative agent of God. And from him came light and from him came life. And in fact, he had all of the power and limitless creative power of God in one person. But the people that saw him chose to stay in the dark cave. They didn't see the brilliant light. They, they really couldn't see what was right in front of them. That's not so different than today. Watch, listen. You're going to tune in and you're going to see lovely Christmas specials on TV with celebrities dancing and singing about a Savior they don't have. And they're going to try to feel the warmth without inviting him to his own birthday party. So go back to John chapter 1. And, and the second story, he says in verse 6, he tells us about a man, a strange guy. He said, a man came, one sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. See, John the Baptist, John the Immerser, was a man on a mission. And he says, I want to tell you just a little bit about the strange cousin of Jesus, John the Immerser. He wasn't the light. Look, even today, people get confused between Jesus and followers of Jesus. You, you hear people say, well, I don't go to church. I don't have anything to do with that. I don't even believe in God because a church hurt me. And what they're telling you is they've mixed up Jesus with his followers. But this is why he said, look, John was a great man, but he wasn't the man. He was a, a, an incredible person, but he was not the Messiah. And, and a few verses later in John 1.15, he even quoted what John the Baptist said. He said this, John testified about him. He called out saying, this is whom I said, he who is coming after me has proved to be superior because he existed before me. 
For of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, wait a minute. Do you remember that Mary went to Elizabeth and Elizabeth was already pregnant with John? So John was born first. But John says, Jesus is not only a bigger deal than me, he's actually older than me. How could he be older? Because John the Baptist knew that Jesus existed before Bethlehem. Paul said in Philippians 2 that that God and Jesus had a conversation before Bethlehem. So Jesus didn't start in Bethlehem. And John the Baptist recognized that he was pre-existing his birth and the apostle wanted to be clear that you knew. John knew who he was talking about when he was standing down in the Jordan River. Now if you go to verse 9, he gave a third little, little place where we can touch a stone on the, on the creek. It says, This was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. He was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. John said, I got to tell you something really ir- ironic about Jesus' coming. The creator, the one who gave us life, appeared right in front of us and we didn't recognize him. It was as though the child no longer knew the voice of the parent. Now, wait a minute. That's not different than your next door neighbor. You're going to watch them pull out a ladder and dangerously hang off the front of their house to put lights on the front of their house for a celebration for somebody's birthday they don't know. And that's what's going to happen. I'd like you to be open to an idea. I want to say this gently. But Jesus didn't come to give a hallmark an opportunity to pump out warm and fuzzy cards with platitudes. That's not why he came. There's more to this holiday than than just that. God invaded the planet that was taken over in a hostile takeover and he came to get it back. And he came with the form of a little tiny baby. You have to understand that since the fall, people were so marred that the children didn't know the voice of their own creator anymore. And that's why verse 11 says this. He came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. It's interesting. The apostle John made clear that Jesus came to fulfill the promise God had made for a Messiah to Israel, but the leaders in the temple in Israel didn't understand who he was. And and because of their rejection, God opened up the gospel, not just to one person or one people, but to every tribe and nation and kindred and tongue on earth. And absolutely, God offered a direct from the manufacturer salvation without a temple. So you have access to the living God and you don't have to go through a people or a religious experience. What's interesting to me though is at the end of verse 13, it says people who follow Jesus are called reborn. That there's a a new birth that happens when you get to know Jesus. There's something that happened in my life that caused me to want to do things I never wanted to do before I met Jesus and caused me to want to stop doing things I loved doing before I knew Jesus. Something happened. Guys, the point of your Christian faith is that Jesus loves to dance, but only when he leads. Otherwise, you're stepping all over him. We we have a lot of people who are operating in a self-willed, flesh-driven Christianity, but that's like going to Home Depot and buying a wonderful electric tool and then cutting off the cord. There's no power to it. 
In John 1.14, there's a shocking word that comes into this. John said, many people did believe. And they were changed by the gospel. Listen to verse 14. This is what he said that was shocking. He said, the word became flesh and, and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. John said that Jesus was the one who was at the beginning. Jesus was the one who was the agent of creation. Jesus was the logos and Jesus put on human skin. And that's shocking. See, up until that time, everybody was with him. Okay, so he's powerful, he's great, he's wonderful. You mean the guy we saw on the street in Jerusalem was him? I always think of that Disney moment in Aladdin. Do you remember? They rub the lamp, genie comes out, and Robin Williams proclaims the famous line about the genie. He says, absolute power, itty bitty living space. And that's what Jesus did. He took the absolute creative power of God and poured it into one baby in one little cradle. Now, what's interesting to me is that John said just because the leaders rejected him doesn't mean that it invalidated who he is. In fact, he made a fourth statement. Listen to this. It's in verse 17. He made a statement to a, a group of people about Moses. He said, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only son who is in the arms of the father, he has explained him. John said, listen, Moses brought God's law and that's great. But Jesus brought God's person and that's better. It's interesting. He, he showed an incredibly clear picture of who our God is. Jesus even said it. If you've seen me, you've seen my father. But I was stunned by the end of verse 18. These words, he has explained him. The Bible says that Jesus came and it offers us dozens of pictures of prophets who told us about the God of Abraham. They all wanted us to, to know God. But Jesus came to display and model an absolute picture of who he is. He showed us God's character. He showed us God's compassion. He showed us God's clarity. And people were fumbling about mistaking the rules of God for the person of God. They got so in love with the rules, they missed the person when he was standing right there. And here's the thing. God meant those rules to be a breadcrumb trail to lead you into his arms. The religion wasn't supposed to save you. The relationship was. And look, the point of knowing Jesus is not to get out of a hell-free card. It's not to get on uh, a great eternity with golden streets. The point of knowing Jesus, the chief prize is to walk with him. I don't even get it. People tell me all the time they want to go to heaven, but they don't want to talk to Jesus now. Heaven is unending time with him. That's what it is. So the prize is not heaven. The prize is not streets of gold. The prize is Jesus. The gift of Christmas is Christ. And the true prize of heaven is the eternal uninterrupted time to get to know the Savior who I love. But here's the catch. If I'm going to say I follow Jesus, I'm going to have to lead, let him lead and let his way be my way. Well, I don't know about you, but that smacks against my stubborn will. And in the face of Jesus' invitation to have a walk with my creator, I often chose to moan and do it my way. Well, I was not much of a crooner, but I can tell you this. Doing it your way doesn't lead you where you want to get. And sometimes the darkness 
of the world brings me to mourning. Does it do it for you? Sometimes you watch the news and you go away and you feel like somebody who's in the back of the dark cave. But you know, not everybody walks around with moaning. Some of them do it with snootiness. I was just reading something. There was a whole study done Recently, a number of young people in America across American college campuses began to find God. Now, a generation ago, people would have said, that's great. But now, Charles Blow from the New York Times weighed in, and he wants you to know that's a terrible thing, them finding God. He writes this. He says, so what was the reason for this flight of the unchurched to churches? Did God appear in a bush? No, no. Most said they first joined a religion because their spiritual needs were not being met. They said they simply enjoyed the services and the style of worship. And and he, he goes on and he says, listen, now this is his opinion. He says, science, logic, reason are on the side of the non religious. Well, that's his idea. But he said the cold, hard facts are cold and hard. So he says the evolution theory. Evidence is irrefutable. This is New York Times, because that's where you go for truth. And he says, um, there's a plethora of biblical contradictions. There's mounting evidence from neuroscientists that suggests that God is the product of the human mind. Yes, yes. But when is the choir going to sing? And when's the picnic? And then he says this. This is his prescription for those who are finding God. As the non-religious movement picks up steam in America, it needs to do a better job of appealing to the human exceptionalism, that wondrous, precious part where logic and reason hold little purchase, where love and compassion reign. In other words, stupid people find God. That's Charles Blow's comment. Can I just tell you, Charles, you're not even close. I want to tell you something. I have traveled all across American campuses and I'm watching a generation of people that are taught that they are nothing more than a a complicated DNA string and a higher form of a virus. And honestly, the world persists saying those who follow Jesus follow after cleverly devised myths. That's what they believe. From their perspective, they maintain that the gospels are fabricated and that Jesus was a charlatan. That's how they teach it. But those are the voices in the back of a cold, dark cave. They believe God is a creation of a human mind. They believe that that delicate set of cells that make up a flower out in the field, it's a fluke. This is a planet going nowhere. They don't have a loving creator. They preach there is no plan. There is no future. Man is an animal evolved out of the DNA strands of a hapless universe. There's purposelessness. But then they stop and tell those same students, but you should behave well. You should take care of your fellow man. You should build a better society. I have a question. Why? If this isn't going anywhere, why don't I just go to all the weak people, beat them up, and take their stuff? Because that benefits me. And there's nothing after this, and it's all just a purposeless mess. Why should I care if the planet stays green? Why should I care about the poor and suffering people? See, the unbeliever adds a cold, dark cave, a sad picture, because they don't have a personal engagement with the Christ that came as the gift of Christmas. You're not going to find... You're not going to find truth in religion because Jesus is hidden behind long lists of rules and a library of books. You're not going to find him in people who are teaching morality and conscience because in America today, 
Whatever was, right, was wrong last week is not only right today, but right will be illegal next week. We just keep changing our mind about what things are. So what's left? Christmas! Christ! Our text says there's good news. God is perfectly modeled in Jesus' coming. One day, God invaded the planet, and he argued that Jesus came to give us a complete picture. Speaking of pictures, there's a picture that was made by a fellow Korean man named Elder Ri. The scroll took him two years, and he created a picture four feet by six feet. It's a picture of Jesus with 27 angels that are the books of the New Testament around it. Here's what's unique about the picture. It's made of 185,000 words of the New Testament. When you get very, very close to it, you can read the New Testament. But when you step back, it looks like a picture of Jesus surrounded by angels. You know what he did? He took the word and made it flesh. That's what Jesus did. Up close, you see the words. When you back away, you see a person. And if you magnify any portion of the person, you'll see his word behind him because that's what expresses who he is. That's John's point. Jesus didn't come to bring a manual of behavior. Jesus didn't come to start Club Jesus so we could all get together for club meetings. He came to plug the appliance of your life into the power of God. And the problem is it's so easy to forget why he came. I, uh, I get the chance to guide British groups. And there was a group from Bath some years ago. And the, the um, rector told a story. And I thought it would be worth sharing with you. He had a, a young boy who was mentally challenged in his congregation. And every year at Christmas, they put on a Christmas pageant. But this young boy who was mentally challenged, they didn't want to give him a speaking part because they were all afraid that he wasn't going to be able to do it. Well, we're just going to call him Robert. Well, Robert bugged the director to the point that by year three, he said, I'm giving Robert a speaking part. So he gave him this line. He became the innkeeper and he said, Robert, this is your line. There is no room for you at the inn. Now, if you know kids like Robert, Robert walked around for the next week everywhere he went saying, there is no room for you at the inn. There is no room for you at the inn. That's what he was saying. Well, the night of the pageant came and everybody got together and a weary Joseph and a weary looking, uh, very large Mary approached and Robert delivered his line flawlessly. There is no room for you at the inn. And they both put their heads down and they looked dejected. And as they walked away, that's when the director knew trouble was coming. <laughs> Robert looked at those, that couple and said, wait, 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 come back, come back. You can have my room. <laughs> now that sweet little boy understood that not only did Jesus come to give a picture of God, but to offer an invitation, something that could come toward. The question is, there's room for you here. Do you have room for him? And honestly, we all learned what Christmas was about when Linus said it. What it's really about, Charlie Brown, is that God put on human skin to perfectly model who God the Father is in living flesh and then invited you to join the family, and you can be a part of that family. Father, we thank you today because we owe you everything. Those of us who know Jesus as Savior know that there's nothing we ever did that made us have the privilege of a relationship with you. We were thoroughly invested in doing things our own way, 
and you broke into human history and broke into our lives and you said, here I am, I want a relationship with you. Oh God, I pray for anyone who's in the sound of my voice today that doesn't have that relationship, that they would find Jesus here and this Christmas would be the most incredible new experience when you're invited to lead them. In Jesus' name, amen.